BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So let's continue on with our scouting report. This could be our last big one, but definitely had to do it. An intriguing prospect, maybe one who gets a little bit overlooked just because he's not this amazing score, you know, probably the worst score of any of the bigs that we have looked at, but a really intriguing prospect. Nonetheless, Jaron Jackson Jr. out of Michigan State, where do you want to start in talking about his game, Danny? Well, I think let's start just with the basic physical profile. So the at the combine, he measured 6'11", 236 pounds with a 7'5 wingspan, and he has big hands for those who care about that. And w- so the way that I would describe Jaron Jackson, I was talking about this with a few people as I watched his footage over the last little while, is that he, to me, is the most modern of the bigs in this group and that is a description that could apply to various degrees to all of them and that is mostly a positive but not entirely a positive because I think the parts of Jaron Jackson's game that he's the least suited for are being de-emphasized and rebounding is part of what I'm thinking about here but they're not out of the game entirely and so I do worry that his weak points being what they are it might be a little bit of a problem yeah how much of a believer are you as a GM thinking about selecting Jaron Jackson that scoring points per game just doesn't matter that much certainly we have made great great in de-emphasizing that aspect of the game as an analytical community but still i mean even when you look at someone like al horford a guy who has been an all-star numerous times in the east probably wouldn't have been nearly as many times in the west a a guy who was awesome in the playoffs this year although i I thought maybe a little bit over his head from a post-up perspective but are you a believer that someone who averages 13 points and eight rebounds which is kind of like the the way you see jaron jackson maybe averaging in the traditional statistics can you believe that that guy is still a really really valuable player because of the things that don't show up on the statue because of his ability to space the floor because of his ability to switch defensively to intimidate now uh, one thing that he has that Horford doesn't, and, and we talked about Carter as a comparison for Horford. I actually think that Jackson is a much better comparison for Horford than Carter is, uh, is his shot blocking, which he was outstanding at 5.7 blocks for 40 minutes, uh, 14.2% block rate, which is even higher than Bamba was, as we talked about in his section. But how much of a believer are you that keeping guys out of the lane, switching ball screen, intimidating at the rim, spacing the floor, making decent decisions which i think he's actually pretty good at at this nascent stage of his development how much of a believer are you that that's what wins basketball games and that you know we got other guys who score for us he'll just help them and what's so funny about all of that and i i I agree with all that is that jaron jackson fills those responsibilities while playing the position that is slowly being marginalized in the league or not even that slowly anymore granted jackson could potentially be the type of center that survives but 
it'll be a challenge for him because I, I think what's what, one of the things that I want to talk about early, and this will be a story in a couple of the lower end guys that I've already watched that we're going to talk about, is it's also about contextualizing statistics. And so for me, something that I've, I've just been having trouble wrapping my brain around is that his shot goes in. I mean, so he was 36 to 93 from three this year, which is 40%, which is very good, of course, and 80% from the line. My biggest concern, though, is with that part of his game is that his release point is super low, but he's successful enough on it that I don't think he's really going to change his motion. And so some of that might be value lost as a pick and pop guy, though I still think as a trail three player, because he looks so comfortable shooting that weird shot and it has gone in so far. So it's kind of like reconciling those two things. Like I think his jump shot might be a little less versatile, a little less valuable, but it is still pretty solid. Yeah, he does make up for that with his quick release, though, and he doesn't really have much of a dip. He can kind of just shoot it right off of his chest very quickly. And I did think that in terms of being able to shoot on the move a little bit, that he had some versatility to that jump shot. Um, we'll talk a lot more about that momentarily here, but I think you know one of the things that we have to be sure about here is okay. We know what he's supposed to be, right? He's supposed to be this switch guy who can pick and pop to three, block some shots as well. But how good is he really going to be at those things? And then, of course, how much can he supplement those with some of the other stuff that happens? And can he be a good enough scorer to keep defenses honest? First, though, I want to tell you about Quip Toothbrush. Went down to the peninsula, stayed at my fiance's parents last night. And, of course, I had my Quip Toothbrush with me. Takes up absolutely zero space in my dop kit. Basically the same amount of space as a normal toothbrush. It's got this really nifty case that you can put over it and then you take it off and you can stand it up even stick it to a mirror or a wall if you need to and so now i have an electric toothbrush that goes with me and is the size of a normal toothbrush and hey you know what like the i have a couple of them but the one that i just keep in my dop kit it's been sitting there for probably about three weeks since the last time i went and stayed overnight somewhere oh well a regular electric toothbrush battery would probably be dead no not this one it just uses a normal AAA battery and lasts for as much as three months probably even longer actually it lasts for three months of being used every day this one will probably last me even longer than that and if you've never used an electric toothbrush before you're really missing out you've got sweater teeth that's what my sister would call them because you can feel the plaque on your teeth maybe you don't now but if you use a quip then you'll just be like oh wow my teeth really feel incredibly clean compared to just brushing with a regular manual toothbrush and it also helps you make sure that you brush for the full two minutes because it's got a timer it's even got these little blips that let you know it's time to change quadrants in your mouth it really is just a fantastic piece of equipment gotten tons of great comments from people on twitter who have used the link getquip.com slash capspace that's g-t-q-u-i-p dot com slash capspace easy remember we talk about capspace all the time on the program that'll get you your first refill pack free and of course let them know that you came from us with that slash capspace url these things start at just 25 dollars. it's a really an awesome value once again getquip.com slash capspace and you can get in their subscription plan i know that a lot of people are kind of lazy about changing out their brush head well they'll just send you a new one every and a new battery too actually every three months and you can switch it out so you're never using a, a bad brush head again. Once again, getquip.com slash capspace is that URL to get your first refill pack free and let them know that you came from us. Let's start uh, as we did with Mo Bamba with his defense. You know, we've been talking a little bit about his offense. I think the defense, though, is the sexier part of him. And that block rate is just astronomical. I mean, he averaged three blocks a game, only 22 minutes a game, though, which is uh, maybe one of the more 
troublesome statistics which uh, Mike Schmitz hit on a little bit yesterday do you believe that he can be just an elite or, or maybe can be I think we both agree he can do you believe that he will be an elite defensive player at the NBA level I think that he has the tools to be I don't it takes a lot for me to predict that as being like a likely outcome for anybody just because it's such a big threshold one other thing that might prevent him at least in the early days of being an elite defender is that he part of the reason he played so few minutes is that he fouls a ton 5.7 I mean so he had right which is crazy high and some of those are preventable and some of those are the the kind of college fouls where a guy runs into runs into the lane he's doing the right thing but I want to take that aside and what was maybe the most important takeaway for me with Jaron Jackson which is very different from the other bigs and I'm not using this to kill the other bigs for it because certainly they all have their strengths defensively it looks like Jaron Jackson knows what's going on. And like, so for example, there were times where he was in weird positions where he's supposed to be guarding a perimeter player. But when I watched him around on the floor, and I've talked before about how when I watch film on a guy, especially in full game situations, I'm just watching him because I want to see, and that's very important with centers. And every movement he made, made sense. So if he was coming off of a guy, it was because he saw a driver that he needed to get in the way of. If he was getting closer to somebody, it was based on some sort of other impetus. And that shows that things are working and he was seeing what was going on the floor and he was reacting to it. And I really, really liked that. And as a young player that can have that part of it there... That's something that all of these other bigs, as talented as Bamba is, as long as his arms are, he's going to need to get better at that because it wasn't really both a part of his necessary job requirement at Texas or just because he doesn't have that in his it is Arsenal yet guys it takes a while to learn defense so I think that was actually the most striking thing not a shot blocking but just that it seems like he has a good head on his shoulder Remember I, I remarked on Bamba that I kind of hoped on some of his switch situations on some of his post-up situations that given his length that he would just have these times where he would just swallow guys up and just make them look stupid Jaron Jackson had that he had a number of plays where he just made like guys would just go up for like some turnaround jumper that they thought they could get off and he would just swallow them up his timing as an on-ball shot blocker is outstanding with that seven five and a half wingspan you know not an amazing leaper but it's just his hands are so quick uh now part of that is him he's going to commit a few more fouls there too by kind of reaching over i mean most of his blocks that he's getting happen within an inch or two of it leaving the guy's hand you know he's not going up and getting these blocks above the square the way a bomba would at times and that's both good and bad right i mean you're probably more likely to commit a foul in that situation but you're also able to affect guys a little bit more be more consistent you don't necessarily have to leave your feet get up in the air too much so that's certainly something that I like a little bit. I did not see him get, and now granted, I probably watched maybe three games worth of defensive possessions in addition to a couple of, uh, you know, some some of the specific situations like ISOs and post-ups and stuff. I didn't see him get a lot of shot blocks where he was coming over from the weak side, using verticality, really anticipating and getting guys. He was much more effective if he was as a help guy kind of reacting from behind back to the rim and blocking a guy who didn't realize he was there from behind and a part of that was because of the role that he was playing he's playing the four almost exclusively as a defensive player so very impressive to have the the block rate that he did playing the four but he also had to spend a lot of time 
out in the perimeter defensively uh, what do you think about what i said uh, about his shot blocking did you see more of those kind of traditional trap the box type of help blocks or not even blocks but you know intimidations at the rim or pre-rotations to stop penetration uh because i didn't see that much of those but that also could have been a factor that he was guarding you know the four man most of whom even in college can shoot now a lot of the time i think some of that was positioning but also i mean like he had a lot of those kind of like help recovery block type things where the action is actually more like when you get a guy blows past you on a on an isolation play i'm not saying that's what happened to jaron jackson it's just that it looked like that you know like you're coming from the other side and just kind of catching a guy as you said it's a little bit different and yeah it's not as much jaron jackson about getting into position but i think intuitively especially based on how he moved around the floor that he could get good at that it's just it wasn't his job description at any time you're trying to think about what a player's role is you want to see what's directly applicable and there isn't as much that is directly applicable in this specific case because of what he was asked to. yeah also worth noting that he hasn't turned 19 yet you know he is a year younger uh than bomba and, and i think aiden yeah. as well i believe he's I believe he is the youngest guy that is expected to be drafted in this class. I think there's technically someone younger, but it's not somebody who's going to probably. So that makes him a little bit more projectable to have basically another year of development ahead of him compared to some of these other guys. Oh, I want to mention one other thing. We're talking about defensive kind of positioning and all that. I thought he had the best closeouts and contests of any of these big men by far in terms of consistency, location, keeping his hands up. He could still get better at that. There are times where he kind of closed in with his hands too far down and that actually led to some of his fouls but he's the closest to getting that right of any of these guys and that's and we got to see a lot of film on that because he was guarding fours a lot so his job responsibilities gave a lot of opportunities to look at it and i was very impressed that and his feet are just fantastically quick now certainly as you mentioned you know you can have some lapses in concentration some lapses in technique but the the raw speed that he can display over a short area is really impressive and not only speed but then change of direction as well so guarding guys in pick and pop he was outstanding getting back to shooters he should be able to execute any kind of conventional pick and roll coverage and he might and then of course he can switch extremely well uh, in isolations against him and these numbers are a, a little bit wonky but opponents scored 12 points on 33 isolation uh, possession against him and so many of those ended up on just him completely swallowing the guy up if the guy would get by him he could block his shot a little a lot of times from behind stay in front of guys get surprise them with a contest for some really bad misses on jump shots i mean this is because you know in in this day and age you got to be aware of this ah you can switch every ball screen you know like because that's just sort of the that's what everyone wants now and so you can say that, but you know how much is it really happening? You know, we we express some reservations about Bamba in that area. I don't feel that way about him. I mean, I think it, for a guy who hopefully is going to be a pure center in the NBA most of the time, that and hopefully all the time, I should say, that he can stay in front of guys. You know, about as good as it gets. I mean, he's kind of he's not a Draylon Green level a guy, but I might even put him as having a little bit more raw speed than someone like Capella. Uh, although maybe Capella has just a little bit more in terms of like the length factor and the quick twitch uh, leaping. So something I noticed watching Jackson's film, which was very interesting, and I noticed this actually watching full games more than in, the, though I did see it for, for sure in the in the clip type stuff. But Jaron Jackson got beat by the first move a guy made a little yes. bit more often than I'd be comfortable with if we're talking about a high-end switch guy. But if the first move didn't get him, then that guy wasn't getting past him. And so... 
I generally feel good about that. You know, like if I were to pick a flaw, the idea that once he gets settled in, that a guy's just, he's going to keep them in front of him. He's going to make the right decisions, but he is a little bit jumpy. Sometimes the change of pace or something, there were, there were a lot of, and it wasn't just, you know, like a point guard beating him. It could be various different positions. He guarded fours, fours and threes did it sometimes too. But I liked that, that, that kind of once he got into, once he got into a, a rhythm. And I think that with Jackson, the mistakes that he makes defensively, which I think were fewer and further between than these other bigs, getting him in the film room, getting him playing against NBA guys in training camp. And then, you know, throughout the season, of course, that he will just get the reps to make those mistakes less free. Yeah. And then just in terms of his ability to be more of a trap the box traditional rim protector you know again we didn't see him going like play defense with his chest in the air verticality that much but he's so fast that assuming that he can get the recognition there which i think you know as you said i think it kind of makes more sense he was guarding four so he did have to stick closer to those guys a little bit but he should be able to just get over there so quickly to really impact guys going to the rim in the post you know again he would have some of these plays where he would just swallow guys up especially if guys tried to go to more finesse moves you know a fadeaway jumper when guys could get into his chest more experienced guys they were able to get decent shots like ethan happ who's a really crafty white post player in wisconsin surprisingly enough uh was able to get some decent looks around the rim against him just by kind of keeping him off balance with little scoop shots and getting into his chest a little bit but you know as young as he is his frame 236 you wouldn't want him to get too thick because i think that could impact his speed to some degree but he definitely has a nice frame he can get stronger you know i think he'll he'll probably settle in around like 245 250 something like that in his nba career and i think he'll he'll get better as a post defender and as you mentioned you know the post up isn't quite as important anymore another similarity that he has to al horford though is not great rebounding statistics Uh, what did you make of that I saw, so the first thing I saw with Jackson, usually I like to do randomized film first and then do a game, but just due to happenstance, I watched the Michigan State Duke game. It was the first thing I saw with Jaron Jackson. That was not a good display of his defensive rebounding because Bagley and and Wendell Carter are just so aggressive and so talented as offensive rebounders. Well, so so how I is he that, failing in that game? Because that's not one that I watched a ton of. Uh, was he not boxing out was he like just going for the ball and not getting it was he not pursuing the ball like where was he inadequate in that game because you know the duke was i think the best offensive rebounding team in the country this year michigan state actually was right up there too uh both of them were over 37 percent. but uh where how was he failing so it was a, a mix of two different types of failing so one there were times where he had inside position but didn't really get the guy and so in those circumstances, you know, Bagley a couple times. And some of that is also due to Duke having two capable offensive rebounders that, that it can be a little bit different. But then other times he just wasn't establishing position well enough. And and that is a concern, especially because he's an aggressive shot blocker. There are times where he can kind of get in his own way a little bit there where he didn't need to go after it. But I mean, his block rate's ridiculous. So it was a little bit of those two. It was not for me when he was in position and had the seal, he was getting up there. I wasn't worried about that part of it at all. Yeah, my observations, I didn't watch that one. I didn't really see him have any huge failures. There would be times, again, when he was guarding the four where he might be more concerned about boxing his guy out uh coming in and you know he just wouldn't he would just box out or even sometimes even face guard his guy and not get turn around and go get the ball i thought that when he did react to the ball he was able to cover ground he was able to get out of his area 19 percent defensive rebounds now remember he's playing neck 
he's playing power forward next to a center uh and then on the other end michigan state was an awesome offense rebounding team but he was only about eight percent offensive rebounds which for this type of a prospect is not very good on the offensive glass at all i don't expect him especially the way he's gonna be playing probably outside a lot to be a huge effect on the offensive glass and you know i could see him maybe struggling a little bit on the defensive glass especially if he's going to be guarding shooters more if he's got to switch more if you're in a more of a switching system you know i think he could get better at really crashing the glass when a shot goes up when he's guarding a guy who's not a great defensive rebound or a great offensive rebounding threat uh but you know it's not like the team overall was a bad i think they're 40th in the nation in defense rebounding yeah the context is very very important there before we move on to something else it was in the post-up section but i didn't i didn't make the note out loud but jaron jackson has a problem that every single big in this class and i think it might just be the way that guys grow is just he some of his fouls come from not trusting his size where like there was a play i watched the michigan game which i was fascinated in the game at michigan state and having him largely well he was sometimes often matched up with mo wagner who is in his own unusual type of prospect and there were a few plays where jackson was in position but just kind of got a little antsy and went for a reach or put didn't put his hands all the way up and just ironing out that it's it's kind of like the low closeout thing like i think that he has the tools to to do that and again that would tie in with the foul rate if he can just kind of take out the unnecessary let's call it a third of his fouls and then maybe reduce the need for some of the next third, then maybe that won't be as big of an issue with the next And they had a lot of depth for bigs. Tom Izzo wants his guys to play hard. He would pick up a lot of like ball fouls and stuff. You know, hopefully he'll be able to edit out of his game a little bit. Let's turn now to the offense and that jump shot. Give you some stats on that. Well, just some overall offensive stats. 23.5% usage. That's relatively low for a prospect that's being talked about in the top five only 11 points a game six rebounds three blocks did have two assists per 40 minutes however and had that 39.6 percent for three 80 percent from the foul line turned it over on 17 percent of his possessions again some of those could be offensive fouls loose ball foul type of plays also you know was showed some inexperience in terms of some of the turnovers that he would have he would have some head scratchers on occasion but i did like his ability in the dho game i thought that he generally was just able to make the pass that was in front of him quickly he moved the ball relatively quickly when the pass was there i thought as as a high low passer he showed some promise he was able to get guys going back door a little bit and they ran a lot of stuff for him where he would either pick and pop to three or do a dho and then pop to three or he could set a wide pin down for a guy coming out of the corner and then pop to three after that and i thought that his footwork looked pretty good on those shots even if he wasn't perfectly set he's able to get it off get it off quickly and especially when he was able to take a little bit more time and really be open he shot the ball very well 12 out of 29 on unguarded catch and shoot jumpers basically every single jumper he took was a three uh and then even on guarded catch and shoot still 54 percent field goal percentage that's uh, totally solid yeah i definitely thought that jump shooting was the best part of his offensive game and part of that is because well i would say overall that is but he has some of this stuff i i've talked before at length about how i i want to see bigs basically trained as if they're as if they're smalls just to get into the comfort of jump shooting and a lot of that kind of stuff but jaron jackson wants the ball in his hands way too much like as a dribbler and he isn't good at it and I assume that the NBA will just take all of that out because there's no place for it. But it it concerns me not so much that 
his skill level is low, but that he has enthusiasm for it because that's really where you can start to get into trouble. And there were a couple of times where he's, you're just kind of sitting there and he's like trying to drive into the paint and you're going, well, what are you trying to do? And I think that also connects with what to me is, is in some ways the more concerning problem, which is that he plays on the interior offensively, not defensively, but offensively. He plays too much like a finesse guy. He He's big and str- like not that's ripped or anything like that, but he doesn't play with the same kind of force that he does as a shot blocker when just just like, hey, I can go through this guy for a dunk. Or, you know, like he, he just he's way too comfortable going with the kind of the finesse, the go around the guy instead of going through him or making the pass or something. Yeah, else. And he did have a very low free throw rate, only three free throw attempts basically per game, uh, which is not great, again, for the type of players. He, he spent a lot of time in the perimeter, which is worth talking about. I want to react to what you said about attacking off the dribble. I understand why you put it the way that you did. You sounded like you were pretty down on it and that he shouldn't do that. I actually believe there's some hope for that part of of his game. Um, I think he's got some pretty good quickness. He's smooth. He actually was able to make some decent passes on the move and, and guys are going to be really closing out hard to him. Now, As a cl- off those closeouts, anytime he puts the ball on the floor, he's going left. He's going left every single time. He's much more comfortable finishing with his left. And he did develop a little bit of a counter to where he could go left and then spin back right although his righty jump hook he's not as comfortable with that he kind of shoots that righty jump hook without nearly as much extension he kind of pushes it a little bit almost similar to the way he pushes his jump shot you know people have speculated that maybe he's more of a left-handed guy that just shoots his jumper right-handed but his jumper goes in you can't complain about that too much uh but yeah the, the fact that he goes left all the time is not great but i actually saw him throw some nice big to big passes what you know off a dribble or two and i think he's quick enough that it's it doesn't mm-hmm. like take him forever to get all the way to the rim because he's fast enough so i think he could refine that if he can actually go both directions it's also similar to al horford again al horford has to go right every single time off of a closeout jackson goes left every single time um so i i think he's got some hope with that aspect of, of his game and, and and i think it could work out or you know the the fake dho and then take a couple dribbles to the rim that type of play i think that that is something that i expect to be part of his game eventually oh yeah i'm totally I, i'm on board with the idea that he can get there as he just needs to change the mentality and I would rather have the 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 building blocks and have to change the approach than the other way around because yeah. that's a lot e- it's a lot easier to fix and it's just going to take some time and I fully assume that it will happen but it, it will take some time and I, I'm happy you brought up the passing because that was the other thing I wanted to talk about is that he had a couple of different types of passes that I enjoyed Michigan State due to often playing two big guys there were times where as he was on the three point line and threw some good interior passes too I think Ward was usually the guy who was kind of posting up and Ward I liked better as a post up player than Jaron Jackson which is fine and then also when he had the ball on the inside he wasn't as good as Wendell Carter who I think was this is the standout in this class of just keeping his head up and trying to find the open guy but jackson did a nice job of when this when the circumstances are like hey you should pass here that he was able to make a good decision there were a couple times where he got it to the opposite corner for threes a couple times where he got it just to to an open player and it's great if they can be at that higher level if they can make that extra pass but i'm happy with where jackson is as a passer overall especially at his age yeah in the post he didn't get the ball a lot you know i thought he did a reasonable job of trying to get decent position one thing that people said is that he's a little bit soft i think you know maybe on the glass that's true to some degree the aggressiveness of his finishes although again like that lefty hook that he gets great extension on it is a good shot for him um but yeah like the the power 
get your shoulder into the guy go up strong type of plays he'll go up for like a two-handed dunk but he's not really going to dunk on people um 65 points on 53 possessions of the post 53 possessions is a pretty low number that's very efficient of course but you know not they weren't really looking for him in the post that much as you mentioned the, their other big ward didn't have any kind of range so he would have to post up more jackson did have some range so he would be outside a little bit more uh his face-up game out of the post is a little problematic because the release on his jump shot is so low i would actually feel better about his potential as a one-on-one score because he is pretty quick if he could actually just get his release a little bit higher so he could shoot over guys when he turns and faces and then use a jab step and blow by them you know i i might like his offense a little bit more but i just i, I don't know that that type of a change in his jumper is going to be forthcoming so it's just hard for him to turn and face and get that shot off uh as i mentioned not as comfortable going left shoulder on the block he's capable there you know he's not just like he's not totally zoolander sabonising it but you know he definitely wants to get back to his right shoulder most of the time uh also no real turnaround jumper game at all you know it's got to be a hook shot if it's a guy between him and the basket so i you know i think he could maybe be okay uh, against switches at times but i don't expect him to be a guy who's just gonna even smaller players like just wear them out in the post necessarily maybe again he's pretty young maybe he can get there you know he's got good touch uh and a good skill level uh for his finishing wasn't really used at all as a role man in pick and roll of course because nobody is <laughs> apparently in college they just don't have the spacing they don't have the passing uh you know unless trey young is your point guard he's not you know a ridiculous alley-oop type of finisher but you know i think if you throw it up towards the rim pretty close to there he can go up and get it you know he's not like incapable of going to get that but you know he's not going to be a guy who's going to catch it at the corner of the backboard and throw it down for you or go up you know to the top of the square and get it and finish from all angles like he's kind of got to be open you know he's not going to get those capella deandre jordan type of big time dunk yeah what did i thought his catch radius though was was pretty yeah. solid it he's wasn't otherworldly like some of these guys hands. yeah yeah so i i think that he can benefit from from some of that and michigan state's guards were not nearly as infuriating as texas's but there were times where i thought they could that he would he would have more opportunities in the nba also just with the change in spacing and everything yeah i mean i would love to know i i saw it for maybe like two minutes in in the games that i watched of bridges at the four and jackson at the five they almost like never went to that alignment i don't know what the state was of like all the their other guards and forwards good idea and obviously they're a very successful team you know until they had to play that syracuse zone and decided that the best way to attack that was just passing it back and forth from guard to guard up top for 25 second and jacking three uh it's still amazing that like no one has come up with better zone offense against the two but that's a that's a topic for another day anything else you want to talk about for him yes so at the end of that game against michigan which michigan state ended up losing when they were kind of scrambling to come back i think they were down six at that point Izzo's desired play call was one of their guards i can't remember which one of them for the life of me was setting a screen off ball for jaron jackson to shoot a three and I'm just sitting there going, wow, like that is a level of trust for that coach in yeah. that player to in, in a key situation to say, OK, what we want is we want Jaron Jackson Jr., who is a center who will be a center in the NBA to take a three. And I think he missed it, but it was it was a clean look. It was a good play call. And I was I was just shocked because you don't see that in college really ever. And one of the reasons that I'm more of a believer in his shooting is that he was really treated like he was a good shooter by his coach right i mean i talked about some of the stuff that they would run for them and they say hey pop to three and take it you know like those those are the shots that they wanted him shooting and you know he's only 96 attempts or whatever it was it is not 
a huge number but when you throw in the free throw shooting his age how comfortable he looked shooting from out there i mean even shot like it was a desperation play but he even had like a step back three at one point going to his left the speed of his release and then just you know i mean clearly they believed in what he was capable of doing seeing it in practice all year that they ran their offense and it had all these plays in where he was popping for a three-pointer uh, and you know he wasn't getting taken out of the game for these shots or anything so it was uh clearly there was a belief from his coaching staff who was very familiar with him that he could shoot the ball even you know at this point in time and i also don't think given kind of the way his release is he's not really reliant on you know getting a ton of rise on his shot and so that means i think he's going to be able to transition out to nba distance you know a little easier than some other guys well so, so let me ask you this question let's say he fails how does that happen the jump shot doesn't provide as much value either because it doesn't go in as much or because because it being so low and he can't really move it up that it gets blocked and just doesn't have as much there defensively either he can't get over the foul issue or the lack of bulk makes him exploitable by by the best of the best and that's enough to make it uncomfortable but yeah i think his straight up bust rate is lower and so i would question i want to ask you on a similar note is so i i had deliberately didn't read it I actually don't know when it came out uh, until after I finished Jaron Jackson. But there was an interesting piece that the ESPN analytics, like their their model came out with. And one of the points that it made was that Jaron Jackson had a, a high success rate. I, I can't remember exactly what the term was, but that he had a low like superstar slash all-star, you know, like that really yeah. rarefied air. And I thought that was an interesting kind of way of describing him. And I think of that as a largely a positive thing. And I also think that's pretty accurate. I do, because I really... I would be very surprised if he ever scores more than 16 or 17 points a game in the NBA. You know, I mean, it's really, I don't know how, I mean, unless he just becomes like an absolutely dominating pick and pop shooter and his post game just gets way, way better. And he's able to develop a face up jump shot and really be a go-to guy in the post, which I'm not precluding, but seems unlikely with guys of his ilk. He is younger though. So there's a, and I think, you know, he is agile you know i think he's able to get on balance he's got quickness he's smooth has a pretty good skill level for his age so i'm not precluding that but i think it's pretty unlikely uh especially just because teams don't want to go into the post anymore necessarily uh yeah and so i mean when we're talking about him being comparable to al horford that means like you know that's his best outcome is al horford and al horford was but i mean let's remember al horford was drafted number three nobody was going to say that was a bad pick at number three to get al horford you know granted al has has had some times where he's had detractors and they felt like you know he couldn't carry a team in the playoffs and etc etc but i mean if if you get a guy who can be as good as al horford at that pick you're feeling great about it i mean just getting anybody who makes even like a few all-star teams is even as as high as or i should say as low as the number three pick uh you still feel pretty good about that pick like you have to remember you know, th- I think this is going to be a very good draft. I- I've been really impressed by so many of these guys when you compare it to how we might have felt about some of these previous drafts going in. So, but still, I mean, I think his like 90th percentile, you know, 95th percentile outcome is Al Horford. I'd be shocked if he could find a way to be better than him. But then, you know, th- there's well, a lot of room. And it's worth mentioning. That. And it's also worth mentioning that I think Al Horford reached pretty high on his outcomes right. as well. I mean, Horford has been a, has been a wonderful player. So, you know, you're, you're kind of, I, I think that it, it's an interesting parallel with yeah. those two guys. And Horford went third and that was the Odin Durant draft. So he went above not only his college teammate, Joakim Noah, but Mike Conley had a real star turn that one year at Ohio State. And then there were just a bunch of other guys that were intriguing that year. And Horford was the third pick and that was correct. So do you want to talk at all about where he fits in with the centers? Because I feel pretty confident 
in part of that and not confident well it's a, i mean i think we can save especially once we do we're going to try and do some some more of the guys who are you know late lottery mid first round to talk about i think we should just do an episode where we reveal our entire big board before the draft so maybe we can sure. save that we can do that uh and i want to think about that more i mean I've, i obviously have some ideas but um yeah let's do a read here and then we can get into uh the off season for the orlando magic and if you want to see all of these rookies next season preseason whenever SeatGeek is the way to go not only for sports but also concerts comedy theater anything that's got a ticket SeatGeek is the smartest easiest way to get tickets two reasons for that saves you time saves you money saves you time by aggregating ticket sites together so now you don't have to go to a bunch of different sites you can just go to the SeatGeek app and then saves you money by ranking every ticket based on value and actually also saves you time by doing that as well because now you look at the section where you want to sit you look for that big dark green dot that just you see that and it just starts to release endorphins at this point and you know you're going to get a great value there you have to worry that there might be a ticket that's oh is ten dollars cheaper is that worth sitting another section away from center court or not with those rankings which are a great algorithm i've uh, been very impressed by it you can just find the best value ticket in the general area and hey you're done in 90 seconds you just bought your tickets this used to take you like 20 25 minutes and and for someone like me who's super analytical i was always stressing out that i wasn't finding the best deal that stress is now gone so way to get started with them is that with that SeatGeek app on your phone if you are a first-time SeatGeek purchaser, you can get $20 off by entering promo code CAPSPACE today. Easy to remember, we talk about CAPSPACE all the time in the program. Once again, promo code CAPSPACE for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now let's talk about the offseason for the Orlando Magic, possessing the number six overall pick in the draft for the 97th consecutive year. Really kind of seems like that. They've been drafting in that range forever. I guess they had number two in 2013. That player is now a superstar and they don't have him anymore. But it is a new regime now in Orlando. Jeff Weltman, John Hammond, they took over late last year. Didn't have a chance to do that much other than just draft Jonathan Isaac with, you guessed it, the number six overall pick in the draft. Rather than talk about their cap situation, I think we should start with just talking about where this team is right now after this will be their sixth summer of rebuilding since the Dwight Howard trade. And that challenge gets compounded by the questions about what is the core of this team? Because Jonathan Isaac, who we both really liked in the draft, had largely a lost season due to injury. I have, you know, no, there wasn't anything really concerning that I saw in that circumstance, but it is, you know, it is what it is. And then a lot of the other pieces are a little bit older, like Evan Fournier, Bismack Biombo. They're not old, but they're older, and then and you don't really know if they're part of the future. So I would say kind of where they are right now is that they are a little bit too good to be the worst, but not good enough to really be a serious playoff, unless Steve Clifford does unlock something that Frank Vogel could not. Yeah, and so really they have, with Vucevic going to be a free agent after next year, and not really, to, me, to my eyes, an adequate starting center defensively. Biombo never able to duplicate what he did in Toronto with his uh, contract so they need a center now those fortunately are, are easier to come by power forward of the future probably taken care of uh even if aaron gordon does not resign as a restricted free agent we'll talk about his situation of course but you've you got john isaac there he's really pretty much a, a typical modern power forward in today's game whether you could play gordon and isaac together 
is a tough question. I mean, Isaac did not shoot the ball well last year. Maybe he can get to the point. Uh, but he really seems like more of a, a shooter from the four position than like the really good shooter you need a, as a three. Uh, well, I think if you play those guys together, it's as the four yeah. and the five, not as the four and the three. Yeah, and Isaac does have that 9-1 standing reach to where maybe he can play center, but also very thin. You're going to have some rebounding problems there. You know, I don't think you can use that as an every down lineup, uh, at least at this point in time for these guys' careers. Maybe Gordon becomes a better shooter. Isaac becomes a better shooter. You can play them together on the wing. Or your other option, too, is maybe you get a really good shooting center but having someone who can do that and also defend, and then you could have Isaac and Gordon at, at the three and four, and that could be a pretty good defensive lineup potentially. And then Fournier, you know, I think he's probably an adequate starting shooting guard, uh, but not someone that I'm like, oh, I'm incredibly excited about. They got him for three more years potentially as that player option for 17 million in the 2020-21 season. Man, that's going to be really annoying to say constantly. And then they have absolutely nothing at point guard. So their biggest holes right now are probably point guard and center but with the lack of offensive talent on this team at the moment i think you're really in best player available mode you know maybe unless it's a power forward uh you know you, you'd wonder about I mean, really the only guy who's going to be on the board in their range draft wise that you'd say hey you know i don't know if i necessarily want to take him because the guys we already have might be michael porter Although still, I think if you believe that Porter is a future offensive superstar, you take him anyway. Oh, I was thinking about Bagley too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it sounds like Pagley's going to be gone amazingly at that point. But yes, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, and, or I mean, if you wanted to play Bagley at center, I mean, maybe. But yeah, I, I agree. He's not a great fit. And I, I like Isaac probably better than Bagley, to be honest. Uh, I do too. Well, and so something else that's interesting with the Magic, I've, I've said this idea for a while now, and it's it's still true for a little bit is that they have a lot of guys who would benefit from having somebody above them in the totem pole. So I think the perimeter rotation is a good example of this. Like Terrence Ross can be a part of a successful rotation. Jonathan Simmons, same thing. Fournier, but you need that player above them. And so that's kind of the idea of swinging high in the draft is that maybe it could balance out the rotation a little bit longer. And they have a backup point guard in Augustine, though the, we have to be concerned because this is, in, this is the opposite year you know like the every other <laughs> yeah. year thing so maybe he's not yeah. going to be as strong this year and then he'll have a better year when he's expiring he's, he's next, like a next baseball season. team yeah and so they but they do need a point guard and i think that's going to be the big clarifying thing that i've been wondering about with the magic because they don't have a ton of cap space so they don't they can't really overhaul and they don't really have as many positive contracts but a lot is going to be told on what asset they use to get a point guard. You know, if it's the mid-level exception, then okay. You know, they could they could do something with that depending on if they go for a vet or a young guy. If it's their draft pick, then they're looking a little bit more towards the future because rookie point guards are almost never good, especially when they're really, really young. So Oh, yes. Young, I'm eh? Excited. <laughs> I wasn't trying to make a pun, but it kind of works. Um, because Trey Young, it will it's probably going to take him a while. I mean, as much as you both knew and I both like him, and he's a better passer than some guys are his age, I just just the NBA yeah. speed and... and I have a feeling, stuff. although so, I really like Young, I have a feeling he's going to look awful his first year. I mean, he, he we've seen just a, where if he's trying to do some of this crazy stuff that he did in college, like, I mean, he's going to have to tighten up his game to some degree. And I think that's going to be a very painful learning process, even though I, I am very high on it would be pretty funny for Steve Clifford to go from Malik Monk, who didn't, they didn't have the urgency to play to, if they draft Trey young, Oh yay! Congratulations. You got a more, a more fun circumstance, but I mean, I'm still excited. That's the other big question I have for the magic is just what parts of what we saw with Clifford as the head coach in Charlotte are 
mandatory for him. So those teams were all, they all played traditional centers pretty reliably. They all were really low turnover teams, though that did dissipate a little bit from what I recall towards the end of his tenure in Charlotte. But the personnel in Orlando is dramatically different than what it was in Charlotte. And so uh, I'm wondering whether he's going to be so wedded to traditional centers, not so much for this year because they have Vooch and Biombo on roster, but moving forward. Yeah, and right now in the draft, I I think this is one, especially since we've done all of our analysis for the guys in this range now, that... I think we should really have a good discussion about who they should take because I think there's going to be players, uh, there are going to be players available to them. ESPN's mock right now has them taking Wendell Carter. Again, I am not low on Carter by any means. He fits into that traditional Steve Clifford center that you're talking about. But man, I have very little interest in taking a guy without superstar upside because that's just what this magic team so desperately needs i mean to me if trey young is on the board that's the pick for me if i'm the orlando magic now and it seems like the chances that he would be gone as of that time are quite low uh and I mean, I think I would go with him. They just so desperately need someone who can really create on the perimeter and not even just from a need standpoint. It's just in general, I think those are the more valuable players. I would not be, I mean, I guess the only way that one of the centers other than Carter falls to them is if Michael Porter goes above them. So it really seems like their decision will be between Trey Young, Mike Porter, and Wendell Carter most likely if that is the decision that they have to make who you take I would take Trey Young for them and but I I think Porter would actually be an interesting bet on the logic that I don't think Aaron Gordon is necessarily set and actually those two guys as a forward combination are intriguing so basically what you're you're betting on is that all three of those guys aren't going to work out meaning Gordon Isaac and Porter and if they all work out, then you have a good problem and you can trade one of them or you can play Isaac at center, whatever you're going to do. So I would, I w- you know, and there's a big caveat here in terms of what's going on with Michael Porter's back. And they will presumably have better information than yeah. I do right and, now. And Schmitz, actually, so yesterday, with, you probably, uh, since we're recording this Monday morning, you probably had a chance to listen to that. But he uh, was saying that maybe even some teams are thinking of Porter as kind of, he's going to almost get a redshirt year. You know, maybe not Harry Giles type, but just that he's going to really need some time to get back into it. Yeah, and if they don't, if that's what it takes, and you don't have as many long term worries, then I'm I'm okay with that for a lot of different teams. Just like the Magic, I said, I don't think they're a playoff team, but that generally kind of back injuries scare me for the exact reason that you never know when it's going to pop in, and you have to be super cautious with them. So yeah, my instinct right now would be Trey Young, Porter, then Wendell Carter because I think that fits in with with what they need. And another kind of challenge here for Orlando, they could have some cap flexibility moving forward. It depends a lot on how they use their stuff. But if they don't get a point guard of the future now, if they, you know, because I don't think they're going to just be awful next year. It's going to be hard to get that guy moving forward. You know, the point guards, once they hit free agency, are almost always expensive or they're really risky, you know, like Dante Exum kind of situation. So, if they don't get that guy now, and I'm not saying take the wrong guy, but if the right guy is available with Trey Young, don't overthink this. Yeah, and if it did, if for some reason they weren't interested in Young, I'd probably still go with Porter over Carter. It's just a, it's very difficult for me to imagine a situation in which Wendell Carter is changing your destiny as a franchise, and this team desperately needs a change of its destiny. And I think you know it's rare to me that drafting at number six, you would actually have two guys with the upside of Young and Porter 
available guys who could be really number one offensive option if things break right for them and that as we mentioned is what this team desperately needs now if they were to take porter the whole thing with aaron gordon becomes a lot more interesting porter shooting you know is one of his better qualities i think that he and isaac might be better suited to play together or he and gordon might be better suited to play together than gordon and isaac together because of porter's shooting ability and his scoring but you know playing all three of those guys together you know that would be a huge front court you know you would basically have everyone at like gordon i think is six nine but he's got a lot of athleticism a huge front court in the aggregate but you don't really have that one center i mean that would be a really interesting positionless type of approach if you wanted to play all those guys together i would love to see that tried i don't know if they would have the balls to do that necessarily and as we mentioned aaron gordon is of course a restricted free agent so perhaps we should discuss his situation now and their overall cap situation as well how how he fits into that yeah so i'll, I'll start with their overall cap situation and for the magic if they keep Aaron Gordon's hold on the books, which is certainly the assumption we want to use, at least for the start of the offseason, they're over the cap, but have a lot of running room between there and the tax line. Granted, maybe they don't want to go all the way to the tax line, but they have a lot of flexibility. So theoretically, they could re-sign Gordon if they wanted to re-sign Mario Hazonia, use the full mid-level, use the biannual if they wanted to, use the use a, the trade exception they have a 3.3 million trade exception i think they would be able to use all of those things unless aaron gordon gets like maxed or damn close to it but the other thing to keep in your background is before any money for aaron gordon orlando could have about 46 million in cap space for 2019 so if they want to spend aggressively this year and go after multi-year contracts that is going to take away the ability to to spend money next year and that 46 million does not include the potential of stretching Bismack Biombo, where they could add another 11 million going that route. I'm not saying they should do that. I'm not saying they will do that, but they could. So they could get up into like the high 50s next year without Aaron Gordon. So that means they could get into the 40s. Yeah, and if they wanted to dump DJ Augustin, they could do that as well. Fournier would have two years left at that point. I, I think to me, the Gordon situation is kind of its own thing because he's so young. You know, what offer it would take for me to not match would be an interesting one. But I think the greater question that they have to answer, and you started to hit on this with this idea of how rough Trey Young's rookie season might be, is what is this team going to try and do right now? I mean, we mentioned this, they're approaching like Phoenix levels and not quite Sacramento levels yet of just non-contention for the playoffs. And the reality is that they're almost no closer to the playoffs than they were when they moved on from Dwight Howard six years ago. And so what is you know, Rich DeVos, their owner, is older? Is he going to be impatient? You know, it, it, did Clifford, did he come in here to oversee a rebuilding project? Or is the idea to get them back to respectability as fast as possible? And to me, despite the fact, I mean, they have definitely tried to shortcut this before, right? I mean, you think of all the terrible moves that they've made since then, you know, the Tobias Harris trade and, oh, we're going to get 50 million in cap space. Oh, wait, but it's the summer of 2016. Don't. Uh, and the Serge Ibaka trade and, and getting rid of Oladipo, getting rid of Sabonis. Like, they've tried the shortcuts before. I think the shortcuts may be a little easier just because there are fewer teams kind of trying to compete now. But, and when I say shortcuts, that's, you know, getting to the eighth seed. I mean, this is a team that's gone hard for the eighth seed. It couldn't even get the eighth seed. You know, I mean, that's one of those things where, like, when you try to compete, sometimes even 
getting to like that piddling level of success doesn't even work but I, I still think they need to be treating this as like hey this is year one and hopefully maybe year two and hopefully that is the mandate that Weltman and Hammond came in with to build up slowly you know to say hey even in 2019 there's gonna be a lot of teams with 2019 cap space maybe it's a, a good idea to zig at that point maybe it's a it's a good idea to you know trade a Biombo or an Augustine or take on some even worse money or uh same thing with a uh, Fournier or Simmons I mean those are kind of the the big even Augustine because he's a useful player those are the guys that you could look at as like between Simmons Ross too is in that he's an expiring contract where they have guys who are just going to push them towards you know 35 wins maybe if they're lucky but who can play who could be vehicles for taking on bad salary through the summer of 2020 and then maybe you target the summer of 2020 as your time uh to try to get better though that'll be another big cap space year most likely but I think that's got to be the approach. And we've advocated this for a number of teams, but there are so many teams trying to dump salary and also get better that I think it it could work. So Fournier, Vucevic is another guy too. You know, I mean, they've got, as you mentioned, all these useful players. I think those guys need to be used to try and get more assets and just recognize where they are in the process. I just have this feeling that that's not the direction they're going to go. Though. I agree with you. It's I'm reluctant to to say that they will align with that. Another guy to mention, you mentioned Vuce, but Terrence Ross. I mean, Terrence yeah, I Ross could be a I part of the him. team's rotation. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Did. I mean, those okay. are a lot of guys who but yeah, are I mean, not. It's, it's just a million guys. Right. I mean, maybe you could look at Fournier as the one of those guys that's like a real bonafide starter. And, and there are teams that could use his skill set as a guy you could run a second side and, pick and roll and his third season might make that a little bit harder but there's enough bad money that i'm sure there's a team that would see the overall net there as being strongly in their favor you know there, there are ways of making that work and i think this ties in with what i think is going to be fascinating with the magic in terms of figuring out where the front office thinks they are i mean the draft pick will be a part of it but also what they do with the mid-level exception orlando is one of the few teams that as presently you know our current understandings could use the full non-taxpayer mle because they're over the cap but under the tax and so that's about 8.6 million based on the current estimates that are out there i think it's gonna be pretty close to that and 8.6 million will go a lot further this year than it would have yeah. in a lot of previous ones but how far is still an open question i mean so they can if they want to win now maybe they could make an aggressive bid for wayne ellington or Mba Mute, or maybe, maybe even Derek Favors. Not that I think that's a particularly great fit considering all the centers they have. But then they could go, you know, they go with a point guard. Fred Van Vliet offer sheet would be interesting for them. Exum, a lot a lot of different pathways for the Magic to go through. Or, you know, Bielitsa. There are a lot of, a lot of different things. Yeah, Van Vliet, that's an interesting one, especially considering that uh, Weltman was in Toronto uh, until recently. Uh, uh, Van Vliet obviously was a, a bit player during his, his time there, but that could be one. And then Van Vliet has shown the ability to play next to another point guard both defensively and, and spacing the floor so you know he could play some backup point guard he could play some if you do draft trey young you know that wouldn't preclude van vliet and, and i like the the idea of using that mle to try to get a guy on a contract that even if it, it's not going to be a value contract but you mentioned that's gonna be a powerful tool this year since there are so few teams that can use that and so the the fact that they wouldn't have to use cap space necessarily to take on money that they could send out a useful player instead with some of their expiring contracts or or with a, a guy you can play 
with two more years on it you're staying over the cap then and then you can use that full mle to try to get another piece that could still be an asset it maybe help you be a little bit more respectable this season so i i like that idea the idea of, of van vliet you know or you could even try to go i mean i do think you want to get someone who's young enough where that can be a value contract where they could maybe grow and exceed it van vliet maybe falls into that category uh, or maybe you could even split up that full MLE, give out a couple of, you know, $4 million contracts to guys who are, you know, in that Travion Graham type of range. Maybe that's a little much for him. Uh, but, you know, to try to get younger guys of that ilk on contracts that might seem, you know, they're like, oh, $4 million guaranteed for a few years. Yeah, I'll take that. But then they actually have the potential to outgrow it. And, and if it doesn't work out, it's not such a huge contract that it's going to be a major problem. Should we get back to Gordon now and talk about his restrictive free agency? Yeah, let's do it. So Gordon will turn 23 before the start of next year. And as you said, that is especially with the age limit where it is right now, that is very young for restricted free agency for any free agency, really. And Gordon... I mean, my my general read on him, it's been hard to calibrate, especially with the weird season where he ended up playing a lot of three because they traded for Serge Ibaka for no damn good reason other than trying to Rob Hennigan trying to save his job. And so my my current read on Gordon is that he's I like him better as a small cog in a big machine, you know, that if he doesn't have to be a primary offensive option and then maybe he could work as a switch defender, two, three, four, something in that range. I think that would be a lot better for him. The problem is there's big winner's curse stuff with players like that players who aren't clearly max caliber like auto porter i think is a great example it's like auto porter small cog big machine but because he plays a position of value porter more so than gordon he got over he got paid a lot of money and so i the idea that you talked about of him getting an offer and then just thinking about agonizing about whether to max it i think that's exactly where this is going all right so uh, now it's my time to ask you this is always such a tough question of what is I mean, we can do this in two parts. Number one, what is your offer to keep him out of restricted free agency on July 1 that you think he might actually take, by the way? And then number two, what is the highest offer that you wouldn't match? Or I'm sorry, the lowest offer, I guess. So I think I would be looking at a starting offer because there is some risk here because there aren't that many slots and it's not clear necessarily that Gordon is the priority everywhere. I mean, whether that is something like Capella and Jokic and think another team could just pivot to Gordon after those guys get matched. And, you know, some teams might be more interested in Jabari than Aaron Gordon. Gordon has certainly shown more in his time, but Jabari was high high ceiling guy, was drafted above Aaron Gordon for a reason. So I would probably offer him something around $18 million a year as the, that would be the average value. So starting salary. Actually, I would consider front-loading it just to but he wouldn't care about that. You offer the years and dollars and figure out the structure after. And I don't think he would accept that, but I, but I think there is a chance that it's in the range he ends up getting. And the highest offer, whew, so... All right, well, well let's, here, let's see. The max, would you, uh, let's say it's a, it's a three, a three so plus it, one. It would be a three, so it'd be a three plus one. For the max. So, so that's uh four years, 108.6 million. Uh, he'd be making 29 million in the 2021-22 season. God, that's, that's rich for me. My, my big concern there, I don't, I don't think I would because I don't, I don't see a superstar just like laying dormant in him. I see, a, I see the potential for a very good player, you know, like the second or third guy on a very successful team and so even though 27 million 28 million isn't you know that that needs to lose some of its stigma because the salary cap is rising hell if it goes to 108 next year then that will change a lot but 
I don't think my instinct is that losing Aaron Gordon is not going to haunt you. And so for me, when that's the line, if that's if that's how I feel about him, then I probably shouldn't be paying that guy even a quarter of the salary cap. Yeah, you know, I think maybe my offer to him to start would be somewhere around like $19 million a year for five years. I think I would actually want to lock in that fifth year if I could uh for him because he's so young really get him in through his prime and it's just he does have a lot of upside it's just the shooting still don't believe it's really ended up around 34 percent last year after that incredible scorching start that we knew could never sustain but and as much as that dropped down i mean that's a, a pretty incredible he's got a lot of athleticism can he i mean i guess here, how about this what would he have to evolve into to be worth that max contract well he doesn't have to be a number one option right. that would be unfair but i would say a secondary scoring option who is a a capable versatile defensive player I mean, he's probably got to be basically you know maybe not sean marion because sean marion is still a, an underrated player but you know close to that type of player guard one through five and do it you know at an above average level at every position he has not reached that yet obviously but he's still only twin mean, he was so young when he was drafted and you know what and, and what are the chances that he reaches that i mean i think you know marion gordon would probably be a better shooter than marion uh marion just you know one of the all-time greatest players ever in transition gordon can get close to that level actually i mean he, he's got that type of he's not that type of a quick jumper he's that doesn't i don't think he has that type of intensity that marion had but i mean that's that's who we really have been talking about here i mean you know maybe he's not gonna be a top 15 player but like you know he's got to be a real poor man sean marion the chances that he could get there eh, you know do i want to say like 30 percent 40 percent something like that uh so no i mean you're kind of taking the risk by signing well, and, and yeah. what's concerning to me is also the chances that he becomes a lot more than that if we're talking about like the ceiling play here with aaron gordon to me isn't all oh, isn't crazy you know it's not like there's that that's what i was talking yeah. about like i don't think there's a superstar drummer in him so that's because that's the other way you can get value is by a guy just dramatically exceeding w what what we think he you know could be like sure maybe he could do an oladipo style elevation but i don't think he's capable enough with the ball in his hands it would require his jump shot getting more consistent and just having him clean up some of the stuff like i talked about this mm -hmm. on a 15 and 60 back in the day like i was wondering why he why gordon was so inefficient comparatively in transition it was because he was shooting way too many threes so cleaning up some of that but yeah i mean i, I just think that that's a big concern for me and, and that's also a big difference with jabari like for jabari i think the case like the best case scenario is a lot better than it is for Aaron Gordon, even if the expected value is much closer, if not in Gordon's favor. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement there. So maybe if it's the max, oof, that's so. And this is one of those ones where I think if you're Orlando, you want to be relatively aggressive with an offer that is less than the max and maybe the way to do that is you know you can front load it you start him at 22 million and then you do declines as well to make it easier potentially to move you know you do start him at 22 million do the maximum possible decline so it ends up being you know a five-year hundred million dollar you know, maybe that that's about what i'd be looking at once you're getting above 20 million for him then it starts to get rough right because you just you want these contracts for a guy that young to have some upside and i'm just you know if you're paying him for and then maybe, you know, a sign and trade could be something that you would look at there also if there's a team that really likes them. See, the, the other part, though, for the restricted free agency is, you know, I'm not sure who that team really is. That's like just so obviously an Aaron Gordon suitor. But as you mentioned, you know, there are teams that could make offers and then pivot if those offers uh, 
end up getting matched so you know i think that would probably be what i'd be looking at is 20 million a year maybe i'd go up to 21 with gordon but it's just it's really tough when he doesn't have to me that offensive superstar upside and you just don't know if he's he just would have to be so good defensively to justify that kind of contract and he has that capability but it's just it's tough so i mean maybe if he gets above that and there really is that offer out there you could maybe try to work a sign and trade but uh yeah it's gonna be tough so i think that that would be i would say you know and then if if he gets a better offer than you know five years 100 million then uh all right you know you you got to kind of figure it out at that point and see what else has happened around the league but i think i wouldn't go beyond that before there was an offer sheet and I'm going to be interested with guys like Gordon. I think he is probably the best example of this. Jabari could be in that mix too, of how much they talk with teams that don't have cap space that, you know, because Orlando could facilitate a lot of different kinds of deals if they wanted to, if they were amenable. And I would kind of just be like, hey, if you want to do that, the problem as Orlando with the tactics of it is by opening it up, you make it less likely that he stays because that more suitors means more variance and more opportunity to, to have a team, or not more variance, but more opportunities to have a team that loves him. But if they could get something for that, you know, maybe get another asset, take on take on some bad money, it could be another way to, to build the team instead of committing to a player who limits your flexibility and, and certainly makes you a better team, but might not really be the centerpiece of the next great magic squad that comes out. All right, that's probably, oh, I guess one, one more thing I want to say on Gordon too, just as a general comment on restricted free agency is, we saw this with Nerlens last year, right? Because it, you know it's boomer bust if the guy rejects the initial offer and actually gets out there on the marketplace as a restricted free agent, right? Remember the Mavs famously offered that five for seventy at the beginning of restricted free agency, and Nerlens turned it down, and then he ended up firing his agent, Happy Walters. He ended up going with the Rich Paul, and they took the qualifying offer. You can say as a team hey, this offer, we're making this at the start of restricted free agency. This is, we've got some risk here, but you also have some risk. And so if you reject it, it's either match an offer sheet or we're going to lower our offer. You know, you can say that as a negotiation, but I think that you always have to be mindful of the possibility. And obviously for Dallas, it was great that Nerlens didn't accept that, but you got to be mindful of the possibility that this guy's going to get in his feelings a little bit and just say, hey, you made that offer before now it's not there like i'm not going to take anything less and i mean there's so many aspects to me of the restricted free agency and rookie extension process that are handled irrationally by players and agents but you still have to kind of be aware of that as a team that yeah okay you can make that offer and say this is only on the table for x amount of time but realistically if you really significantly lower your offer after that like the guy's just going to be pissed off. He probably isn't going to sign it. Or if he is, he's going to be angry that he's there still and that you lowered your offer on him. Like there is still that anchoring that comes from that initial offer. I have a couple other just kind of housekeeping notes with this team. Shelvin Mack has a $6 million non-guarantee, which is before free agency starts, I would expect that he'll be gone. Now that is, Tempurch, however, minimum. note that that is actually $1 million guaranteed, uh, the, which is- Oh, it is yeah, $1 million. I had it as non-guaranteed. Pincus tweeted it out initially, but I think he maybe he just didn't get a chance to update it on his actual sheet but yeah that is one million guaranteed until four days after the draft so that is he will uh not be on the magic uh after okay um and, and also worth noting that for him because he signed that contract under the new cba that just trading him away he would count the outgoing salary would be different than the incoming salary it makes it really difficult to trade him unless you guarantee that so you can't do the whole oh we'll trade him away and we'll take back six million 
in salary you know as a way to help another team dump salary you can't do that anymore unless it was a guy who was signed on the previous cba like a cole alger so so that's an important note very very unlikely now hopefully they will not make the same mistake that they made with cj watson and stretch his one million guarantee the way they did last year which was uh pretty asinine uh i mean it's not a huge deal it's only three hundred thirty-three thousand, but and there's just zero reason now i guess you know if they lose gordon they would have about 17 million in cap space but it's it'll be so late in the process by then most likely that you know they'll probably end up just holding on to it or maybe taking on bad money with i don't think they're gonna be really like oh we need this extra six hundred and sixty six thousand dollars in cap space by stretching shelvin max one million dollar guarantee yeah there have been there have been a few others of those too like kevin martin got stretched by the wolves in a weird way matt barnes we talked about with sack there are a couple other ones but so the other non-guarantees they have ken birch and Rodney Purvis, I liked what we saw from Ken Birch last year, just at the minimum, assuming yeah. they're not going to be needing to squeeze he, every he dollar out. He guarantees early. And, and then Ken Birch, he's a six, yes, he 629. Does. So, yeah, yeah, again, I think really where they're at right now, you know, they're not going to run into the tax line. You might as well just guarantee that, see if he, if he can work out. Um yeah. yeah, I mean, they'll have the flexibility. They could just cut him if they don't think he's good. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't really sacrifice too much. But the most interesting free agent other than Aaron Gordon is my good friend Mario Hazonia. And so Hazonia is the less famous version of what's happening currently with Kevon Looney, which is when you decline an option, you cannot play, pay a player more than that option amount. The big difference between those two gentlemen is that Hazonia's hold and his maximum is 5.2 million which is a lot of money and more than enough probably to, to pay him you know what he would get somewhere else so i would be interested in bringing him back potentially i would also think you know other teams could be as well but don't ba- break the bank for hazonia especially considering it looked like his best position was the four and that is not a position of need for this magic team so you know maybe if he doesn't really have anything and for one year you can bring him back just on the chance that you'll have full bird rights after that that sort of thing but if somebody makes him a good multi-year offer just let him go yeah that seems uh, and you know i think he still has some issues with the the organization he he gave an interview in which he was asked what the difference was between his previous years and last one where he showed a slight amount of promise one of them was that he was playing the four a lot but also he basically just said playing time and nothing else (laughs) so it, it seems like he's gonna be looking for wherever the largest available role is and you know maybe they bring him back but he is not of this regime and and you could certainly see him letting him go and obviously they declined his option for a reason to begin with where do you think they could go as far as using the full mid-level if they decided you mentioned dante exum fred van vliet any other options that, that stick out to you there if they want to win now they would be an intriguing make good isaiah thomas destination because they actually have starting point guard minutes available unless they draft one I mentioned Wayne Ellington a little bit earlier. He'd be intriguing. I think he overlaps too much with Fournier. Those are two guys that are more shooting guard only. They can't really switch a whole lot. But, and I mean, I don't think Mba Mute, it would be very interesting to actually get a good test of what Aaron Gordon is defensively. Because if you had Mba Mute and Gordon together, you know, how they handle those assignments, who does, who does Gordon defend well, that would be interesting. The problem is I wouldn't really want to go on a big multi-year deal with Mba Mute because his, age-wise he doesn't really line up with what they're doing. That's more for me a calibrator of like, okay, this is Weltman and Hammond going a little bit more aggressively for the present. Yeah, the aforementioned Looney actually could be an interesting fit as a center if they wanted to go to more of a switch everything alignment depending on who they draft if they keep around both isaac and gordon 
and I'm talking about kind of more now for these hey my idea of let's break up the MLE and try and bring in some other guys some of the backup point guards who are restricted free agents like uh I, I doubt uh Shabazz Napier would want to go back there maybe Yogi Farrell could be an interesting one uh if Teodosic becomes a free agent they could be an interesting destination for him he's a guy who might help make them a little bit more entertaining but hopefully not win too many games but they I mean they really just need some good pick and roll play a guy is a shooter hey Alfred Payton is a restricted free agent just kidding uh well, you're not kidding that he is a restricted agent. And also we should mention that's part of why why Orlando has a little bit more flexibility is because they don't have to worry about paying him either, you know, a pre-free agency contract or matching or whatever. Yeah. Not that his value is super high right now. But also, I oh, so this is something I wanted to bring up because I brought this up in my write-up for The Athletic. You don't want to rush it with a point guard. You don't want to force it because we just saw with Orlando what happens when you draft a point guard and they end up not being exactly what you need because it's the idea of kind of being pot committed. It's not it's it's a logical fallacy teams shouldn't do it as much as they do but you foreclose on other opportunities because you're like hey let's see how Alfred Payton works out so if they don't feel that you know let's say Trey Young's off the border or they don't feel that he's the right solution there are problems with trying to trying to fit it in and when the player isn't worth it well and I mean for next year this is such an ugly point guard market that you know there really aren't any starting caliber point cards unless Isaiah Thomas is going to be healthy that they can bring in you know I mean, it's really would have to be DJ Augustine you know there, there's Rondo there's Derek Rose who actually might be able to help this team a little bit if he could stay healthy uh but you know he's too old really for for what they're they're talking about you know, Seth Curry could be an interesting one as a guy who maybe, you know, you you could bring him in and let him try and fill it up and be a guy who could build some value. He's still young enough to do that kind of a distressed asset at this point coming off that injury. Well, it, it- and with Seth, if you can pay him at the price where it's a reasonable backup guard price eventually, then you could slide him into that role once you get somebody better than him in case it doesn't work out. I, I And I like Seth Curry a lot as a second unit guy if necessary. Yeah, I think also, you know, given some of the defensive, at least potential that they have in their front court and on the wing. Doug McDermott might be someone that they could look at a, a little bit. Rodney Hood, who you'll recall just absolutely lit up the Magic last season. Probably, you know, dep- obviously so much is in flux in Cleveland, but you'd imagine Cleveland probably matches if there's an offer sheet with the MLE there for, for Hood. Maybe not if LeBron sticks around, interestingly enough, but probably if he leaves, they, they would. Um, that's about all I got here. Pat McCaw could be an interesting yeah, one I, for them too, maybe. That's exactly what I was going to say. I, I think McCaw could be intriguing. And they could, you know, they could maybe throw something at like Davis Bertans yeah. just as a kind of another, like as a kind of a different version of McDermott. Yeah. Ty Wallace, maybe, a, who's a restricted free agent as a two-way guy, sh- showed some promise. A guy maybe who, who can give them some energy. You know, the fact that he can't shoot makes him a little bit of a tough fit. But, um, you know, that's one maybe they could think of. Just a, another guy who's 25, just get some some young talent that could develop on the roster and it would hopefully be a nice contract yeah and it would be very interesting to see if if they theoretically did your idea which i support but don't think will happen about kind of clearing house they could actually go in some interesting directions on kind of like one year testing out guy spots is on the big big line or whatever but it's just that they have too many centers because there's so much value there at the center spot but it's just that they don't really need it at the moment all right we spent 45 minutes on the metric i, I think that that is uh, enough um a little bit of news. We can probably just save that to tomorrow. Oh, oh wow. You, you had something? Oh, I, I want reactions. Okay. I, I don't know, because while we were recording, a piece of news happened. Okay, what is it? Rudy Gay declined his player option for next Ooh, season. Man, they are jumping off that sinking ship fast, aren't they? And that's also 
fascinating from a financial perspective for Rudy Gay. We just talked about how few teams have the full MLE to offer. That's basically what his declined option was for a single season. And so maybe he would like less than that, but for more years. But I think he wants to just go somewhere to win. I mean, you remember he turned down that Sacramento option, which was, uh, was a lot of maybe he just feels like with Kawhi wanting out that that's not really an option for him as much in San Antonio anymore and for the Spurs that's difficult if they you know they really need someone who can score on the perimeter they just don't have that right now and that does give them a little bit more flexibility uh presumably Gay is not opting out so he can go back there I mean I guess they could make him an offer but they actually you know Danny Green is the next domino to fall there in San Antonio We'll see though. I mean, obviously the, this is all subsidiary to the Kawhi thing, but uh, you know, probably Gay signs elsewhere. And, and for Gay, I think he will be in demand. He is one of the few guys who really can fill it up off the bench in this free agent class. So I think there will be a demand for him, especially because he showed a little bit more defensively this season as well. And at 31, looked pretty good coming back from the Achilles. So I, I think there'll be a, a market for him above the MLE. It seems pretty unlikely because there just aren't winning teams that need someone like him but uh you know if he is opting out and he's just okay with taking the full taxpayer mle there'll be a lot of teams who will want his services there and i think he'd be a good value at that number i think that this really is about winning more than it is maximizing money for re though yeah that very well could be and it'll be fascinating to see what he prioritizes what teams offer him let's say the full mle so and, yeah, and maybe be, the spurs it's, will just it's, offer you know would just bring him back for more money on this on, on another 20 percent raise I mean, or whatever probably at a minimum they'd be willing to do that because i don't see them going into tank mode this year no i don't either yeah that's that's an interesting one uh since we're doing a little bit of news uh, mark stein with just some lottery trade buzz saying that the kings are actually weighing taking porter at number two now that's per rival executives so why would rival executives be in any better position to know that than stein himself would be who knows i mean everybody's got their intel and ways of getting it how reliable that is whether that's eighth hand information or from agents or what you know who who knows how how reliable that is and then memphis this was a, a rather cryptic tweet i'm not sure what type of a conception this trade would take but memphis is apparently looking to move parsons and number four while still staying in the high lottery and so that occurred to me as well chandler parsons one of the most toxic contracts maybe the most toxic contract in the nba at this point you know over 25 million a year the next two seasons for a guy who you know, hasn't been able to stay on the floor and at best might be able to play a little backup combo forward with his health concerns i mean maybe what that would be is because no i don't think anybody if you're sitting at like six or seven or you're the the bulls or the magic you're not willing to take on that parsons contract just to move up two or three slots right so something's got to be coming back to memphis in that that's also maybe bad salary but not as bad or maybe it's you know just for one year or something but even that seems like more value than memphis should expect yeah i mean especially considering how little flexibility a lot of these teams have i, I think that would be a lot a lot to expect but we'll we'll see and that's part of the reason I, I love the draft so much is that you get these you get to see what gms really prioritize and and how they value it and yeah it'll be a, a lot to check in on moving forward anything else i'll i'll plug a couple uh, things yeah there's before. actually uh, uh tiny again ganguly out of uh, la at the la times said uh and this was reporting with broderick turner as well 
according to sources the clippers would be willing to create a package including tobias harris who by the way is an expiring contract and either the 12th or 13th not both pick it in this year's draft in a potential Kawhi leonard trade and then she also confirmed that Kawhi is most interested in going to the lakers that presumably coming from his camp or maybe it's it could actually be coming from the lakers too who's been told that by his camp you know that, that could be it but i think that's interesting tobias harris on the 12th or 13th pick you know if the clippers believe that that's a realistic offer you know, this is what we talked about yesterday of hey maybe these offers are not going to be that amazing you know now certainly if you're philly or you're boston you can beat that offer very easily if they threw in both 12 and 13 now maybe it gets more interesting but then you know it becomes more difficult and i, I think that would be sort of the hey we still want to compete as the spurs harris is probably a guy that they could get a lot out of and i mean it is worth noting that completely without Kawhi leonard and with a huge hole in his position they won 47 games last year now i think most of their guys are on the downside but you know you could see the spurs in the 45 to 50 win range if they were to get harris back and obviously if greg popovich were still coaching it at his best which you know it is understandably a little bit of a, a question with the personal tragedy that he's undergone um all right now i think we're done if you want to plug some stuff so 28 of my 30 previews are out for the athletic of my offseason previews the 29th the los angeles lakers will probably be coming out in the next it, it might be out by the time this comes out for the recently launched athletic los angeles so that'll be exciting also wrote a piece over the weekend about the the kind of the way the Warriors should think about their roster slots in terms of regular season versus playoffs. And then a, a primer on the cap part of the Kawhi situation. I didn't get into any trade suitors or anything like that. Those are all up at The Athletic and hoping to do a bunch more stuff. I mean, and we're obviously going to do more draft material so people can look forward to that. Yeah, we're going to roll through some more film, kind of do some of our quick hitters, and then we'll do our, our draft board as well later in the week. So uh, lots more fun stuff coming. And then obviously the draft is only three days away. Wait, it's going to be awesome. We'll talk to you all on Tuesday night. Till then. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 